This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is State of Ukraine. I'm Steve Inskeep with NPR's best reporting on a war that is changing the world. Did Ukrainian forces strike back inside Russia? Something happened near the Russian city of Belgorod, which is just an hour or so from the Ukrainian border. Russia's government released images of an oil depot on fire. Russian officials claim that Ukrainian helicopters struck that depot, although we have no word from the Ukrainian side. We'll bring you more as we learn it. The two sides in the war resume peace talks today via video link, which at least means nobody has to worry about poison. Okay, okay, some earlier fears of delegates being poisoned have not been confirmed, although U.S. officials have pointed to Russia's past acts against its opponents. The last round of peace talks produced a Russian promise to back off Kiev in another Russian city. Russia is, in fact, still firing artillery and rockets into Kiev. But as our colleague Alyssa Nedwerny told us in an earlier episode of this podcast, some Ukrainians are emerging from bomb shelters or even returning to Kiev from elsewhere, going about their lives. People would still like to get out of Mariupol. A Red Cross convoy is waiting for a chance to get into that city, deliver supplies, remove some people, but they want a promise of safe conduct from the combatants, and they're still waiting for that. Let's get an image now of a country mobilized for war. Volunteers near the front lines are working at a warehouse to do anything that needs to be done. Anything. Here's NPR's Jason Bobian. On the ground floor, in what used to be a car repair shop in Zaporizhia in eastern Ukraine, men are cutting pieces of scrap metal into strips. They then weld them together to make protective plates for bulletproof vests. A welder, who gives his name as Alexei Simchenko, describes how the pieces of metal are formed into a breastplate. Across the room, sparks fly as other people grind the edges of the plates. Vasil Busharov, who before the start of the war in February was an event planner, now coordinates the volunteers who show up at this warehouse each morning. Busharov says they're using metal from junked cars for the vests. Used cars, old cars we make, and it is work. It is work. Uh, I can show you we're shutting all the plates and have good result. They even brought in some soldiers to shoot at the body armor and make sure it works. Up a steep set of stairs from the metal shop, a dozen sewing machines surround a large work table. Here, women sew the canvas vests that will hold the steel plates. Elena Grakova, a local fashion designer who usually sells her clothes in boutiques in Kiev, oversees producing the bulky camouflage vests. Had she ever designed a bulletproof vest before this? <laughs> Never. <laughs> Only clothes and uh, shoes. Krakova says her team produces between 20 to 25 bulletproof vests every day. The warehouse also serves as a hub for volunteers who drive into Russian-controlled areas less than an hour from here, near the besieged city of Mariupol. They're trying to evacuate people who can't get out on their own. This place is also a distribution point for humanitarian supplies for evacuees. There are rooms filled with donated canned food, pasta, shampoo, and diapers. One problem for many of the people emerging from the intense fighting, Busharov says, is autoglass. There is a special division here of guys who help to fix their car windows because almost all the cars that get in here have broken windows. 
Russian forces have been bombing areas heavily before moving in with ground troops. The bombs can blow out all the windows of any car parked near the explosion. So the mechanics here help patch up the evacuees' vehicles and replace their windscreens if they can. Most of the people fleeing Mariupol and other areas that have been pounded by the Russian invasion don't stay here. Many want to get as far away from the front line as possible, some even saying their goal is to get all the way to Poland. Busharov says hundreds of volunteers show up every day at this center. Mechanics work next to business consultants packing sandbags. Teachers coordinate delivery schedules. Yeah, you can uh, see the big difference between people who are afraid and people who are eager to help. And this time I have seen so many people that will they will probably become my best friends in future. They are doing incredible things here. For him, he says, this war has brought out the best in a lot of people. Jason Bobian, NPR News, in eastern Ukraine. So here's the strange thing about today's podcast. We've just heard of people staying in Ukraine or even returning to their war-torn homes. In Russia, some people want to get out. U.S. companies have been trying to extract their Russian employees. Here's Amanda Aronchik from NPR's Planet Money podcast. When I first spoke with the CEO of an American software company, she was frantically trying to book plane tickets. It's almost impossible to get a ticket online, and the prices have skyrocketed. Most of her employees are programmers and developers living in Russia. The CEO herself was born in Russia but lives in the U.S. and has been a citizen for more than 20 years. We're not using her name because of the possible danger to the people who work with her. Every day I speak to them, and everyone just, we're all crying. There is nothing more terrible than what is going on right now in Ukraine. And on top of that, we're now also concerned about the well-being of every single person within the organization. As relations between Russia and the West collapse, it is getting scary there. People who protest the war are being arrested in the streets, risking long prison sentences. People also fear being conscripted into the military. So the CEO's business partner, whose name we're also not using, he knew immediately he wanted to leave Russia. The CEO managed to get him plane tickets to Turkey, but escaping the country was still going to be tricky. What did you do to prepare to leave? I started smoking. (laughs) On Thursday, I started smoking because uh, I had a big stress. He said goodbye to his mother and in-laws, left his dogs and the keys to his apartment with a friend. And then he, his wife, and their two kids headed to the airport. We entered the airport building. My wife decided to go to the toilet. And on the way, uh, a man stops them and say, where are you going? The man doesn't show any ID. His wife thinks it's probably somebody from the Russian intelligence service. But they have a cover story. They are going on vacation. I was speaking very loudly about this. Is that now we're going to Istanbul, we'll stay for 10 days, it will be so good. And the cover story seems to work. They make it through customs, then border control, get to the waiting area, and their plane is at the gate. When we finally passed customs, it was my first time within this week when I understood that now I'm in a safe place. They make it to Turkey. It all happens so fast. He and the CEO are still running their company, But otherwise, he's basically starting over. I'm starting everything from scratch now. But again, it's better to start from scratch than to end in jail. Fleeing Russia was not the future that the business partner saw for himself. 
And for the CEO back in the U.S., it has all been hard to watch. These are young people. Majority of them are in their 20s and 30s. They grew up wanting to be part of the world and not to be stuck within the borders of Russia. The CEO has helped get more than half of her employees and their families out of Russia. But not everyone left. So she is starting to hire new staff. This time, people from Ukraine instead. Because now she doesn't want to participate in the Russian economy at all. Amanda Ronchik, NPR News. And this is State of Ukraine from NPR News, NPR's best reporting on a war that's changing the world. We're with you twice a day. Avery Keatley produced this episode along with Sean Saldana and Kelly Dickens edited. I'm Stephen Skeep. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club. NPR Wine Club members have contributed over $1.5 million to helping create a more informed public. B21. Join the charge at nprwineclub.org slash podcast. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.